And this is the music editor at Rolling Stone magazine. This is William Miller. Yes, it is. I think you should be writing for us. From Cameron Crowe, writer-director of Jerry Maguire. If you're gonna be a true journalist, you cannot make friends with the rock stars. Just make us look cool. God, it's gonna get ugly, man. They're gonna buy you drinks. Don't take drugs! They're gonna fly you places for free. Bowie! You're gonna meet girls. We are not groupies. We don't have intercourse with these guys. Just blowjobs, and that's it. Amen. On the road with the band. Your mom called. Rock stars have kidnapped my son. Spirits run high. There's acid in the beer that's in the red cups. How do you know when it's kicked in? I am a golden god. Innocence runs wild. Let's deflower the kid. We need this story in four days. Your time is come. More to write home about. Can I speak with William, please? Is this Marianne with the pot? Then the music. What do you love about music to begin with? Everything. Don't you have any regular friends? Famous people are just more interesting. Welcome back to the show, everybody. This is Reconsinimation, your podcast that takes a look back at our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I'm John Diner. And I'm David Munchak. And we have yet another very special guest today. Look at us. We're bringing in all the bodies for this this season two of our show. We, we, we expand. We're expanding. We've oh, got more microphones now. We can have people The budget here. is bigger. The world is bigger. Yeah. And uh, I want to introduce our executive musical director of Antiquities, live from Nicaragua, <laughs> Mr. Joel Sweeney. It is just a pleasure to be here with two golden gods such as yourself. <laughs> That's a reference to the movie we're doing today. <laughs> Ding! I, I'm, I'm, I'm catching up. Uh, great to have you here, uh, Joel. This is so cool. I, I'm honored. Um, I'm just happy I passed the uh, background check. Yep. And I was talking to uh, your intern, Greg, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. It was Greg or Kyle, yeah. one of them. Greg, usually. And he said, uh, once I passed the background check, and if this went well, I could then be invited to re- Reconsidimation Studios to be there in person. It, yes. But I had to pass... Uh, he said it was Kumite rules, and I had to like pass the Dimmock first or something like that. Yeah, that's so. part of it. You know, I'm, I'm excited to, to eventually get live and in person. Joel, it's an ongoing test. Yeah. So it, it, uh, it takes four to seven years before you actually graduate to the studio. I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm here for the long haul. <laughs> we, okay. It's a, a nice, long, involved process, but totally worth it in the end. You'll get a sweet office. Uh, Your own parking spot. A parking spot. With, or 10. It, however many cars you have, you'll have that many spaces. We've got room. I just got, I'll eventually get the undisclosed location address. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I have some ideas. I've kind of plotted it on Google Maps where I think y'all mm. are, but. Yeah, we don't advertise, eventually. but it, it is its own country. We've yeah. established that. Yeah, that's canon now. But, uh, so we're, we're going to go back 
not too far back. For me, this is like present day. This is a modern movie. This is modern. This yeah. movie would be like yesterday. This just so. happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, back to the year 2000. Woo! 2000. And continuing our discussion about our friend Cameron Crowe, mm-hmm. it's his masterpiece, That's Almost right. Famous. Which is, Joel, I think it's a film that's near and dear to your heart. Is that, uh, is that correct? Yeah, it's been a movie that definitely uh, influenced my musical taste and just kind of spurred more of my interest in kind of rock history hmm. and um, getting to know the, the lineage of, you know, when you're listening to something now about how it was influenced by everything that came before it and even what came before the bands that are discussed in this movie. You were so you weren't like a, a super fan or knowledgeable about like the music of the era, um, like or did you have like a general awareness and then then you just dove deep? I I, I had specific uh, interests like you know I was reading about the history of uh, country rock music, got way into Graham Parsons, and there's a little ode to Graham Parsons within Almost Famous we can yeah. talk about, um, but it really helped me kind of look at some of the bands that I never really looked at before. You know, like Elton John plays such a huge part of his music in this movie, but I wasn't really even listening to Elton John or a band like Deep Purple that I just knew from classic rock radio that had one hit or Humble Pie hmm. with uh, that Peter Frampton came yeah. from. So kind of just expanding that knowledge and that scene where he goes through the records. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, I, I should just own all those records that he goes yeah. through, that he gets, inherits from his sister. I should just own all of them. Well, I was going to say, I was like, did you have an... You, so, like uh, the character in the movie, and Cameron Crowe himself, probably, you had an awakening. Uh, just like yes. this one movie just shifted your, your interests and your and what you were getting into. That's kind of cool. It was it was great. And uh movie I've... You know, I, I took some time apart from the movie because, you know... A while I'd watch it constantly and so I think on this reviewing it had been you know maybe a decade since I'd seen the movie wow but I remembered so much of it you know because it was so influential during that time well you know prior to the creation of Recon Cinema Studios Joel and I were uh, not only students at that great college of Santa Fe but we were roommates and and super super best friends as well. Oh wow! So, and still super super best friends, <laughs> though we live many miles apart. Friendship knows no distance. That is true. Um, so you, you like I keep Joel is one of the the original loonies. We, Joel's we, a loony. We've been referring to Joel's a core loony. <laughs> He's a founding loony. Uh, yeah, uh, Joel and I go way back. And did we see this movie together? I I want to say yes. I my memory is that I saw it twice in the theaters in Santa Fe. And yeah. So I I'm assuming there was people I knew. I also want to say there was a there was a random person there as well. Maybe like a like a Mike Leffingwell. It could could have been. Or or a Chip, maybe. Oh, I don't think Chip would have been there. No. <laughs> A Seamus? I don't know. Somebody. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we. It was the second time you saw it when I when I went with you. Gotcha. And then once it came out on DVD, it was screened many many times in our apartment. Many times. <laughs> uh, but I I fell in love with it right away, which I wasn't. I was kind of pessimistic. I think. 
maybe because you were so into it, I was like, ugh, I don't know. I don't think so. It was like a rock and roll nerd movie. It absolutely is. There's just so many is. things that I was like, and like, that it just confirmed for me that I'm like, oh no, I have good taste in music because that album appeared. You know, Blonde on Blonde is in that, is in the records mm-hmm. that he's looking at. <laughs> And Pet Sounds was in that. Uh, it was like number. That was the first record he looked at was Pet Sounds. Yeah. And it was right around that time VH1 was doing all those, uh, you know, top 100 albums of all time. Right. That's right. And uh, all the behind the musics and everything like that. So it was a good time to learn about rock and roll. Well, I hadn't really been that into 70s music either at the time. I had like gone through the you know the Beatles phase and the 60s music and then. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm deep into the 80s. Yep. (laughs) Uh, And those great early 90s. (laughs) But then after this, I got really into Zeppelin especially. And I bought like everything I could find. Yeah, everyone. uh, Yeah, I always have that someone that kind of influenced your musical taste. It was for me, it was my, my brother and my mom. You know, like a lot of her albums, like she has Blonde on Blonde on vinyl, you know, from the the first issue and everything. Blonde on Blonde's a Bob Dylan album. I don't Mm -hmm. know if that was needed to be said, but um, for me, you did. You know, she had that. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Blonde on Blonde had such hits as Rainy Day Woman. Well, David, when when did you see this movie for, for the first time? Probably... I probably saw it. Uh, I don't think I went to the theater. I may, I may have honestly. I remember, or I saw it like pretty soon after it came out on DVD um, in college with college folks. Um, um, I don't, I don't quite remember. I, I was going, I was going to the movies a lot, and there was like talk. There was always like a big. Everyone I knew was into the seventies and that kind of stuff. So this is like, and that music and that stuff, and it's like not something I'm have a good awareness of or you know following. I didn't. I'm not really. I don't know. I'm aware of like the bigger things, like the bigger hits, the things that'd be on the radio, but not all the albums and, and what these guys have all put out and all that. So, uh, so this was just like going to the movies again. You know, that nothing nothing was drawing me toward it other than hey, let's let's go see this movie everyone's talking about. Um, and uh, um, and it didn't change my musical influence at all. <laughs> I wish it did. Because for you, it's all about the Mortal Kombat soundtrack twenty four seven. Yes, that yes, yeah. So th- this isn't going to shake that up a little. That and the Matrix soundtrack. <laughs> Those are the two. <laughs> anyway, um, well, the movie came out in September of two thousand, mm-hmm. and it was Cameron Crowe's follow up. I guess about four years after uh, Jerry Maguire. Oh, okay. That was huge. So the last time we spoke about Cameron Crowe was when we talked about Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Mm -hmm. And much has changed for Mr. Crowe between then and now. The uh, reaction of Fast Times was huge. As we talked about, it became kind of an iconic early 80s film. Mm Mm-hmm. Huge success for him, uh, but he wouldn't go on to actually direct his first film until 1989 with Say Anything. Another brilliant film. Classic. Yeah, classic. If you're a Cusack fan, you gotta be there. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta get on board. 
Yeah, Say Anything, and then what was his next movie after that? Singles. Singles with yeah. Ben Stiller. No, yeah. Uh, and Matt Damon's brother. No, not Matt Damon. Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon? Matt Dillon. <laughs> Matt Dillon himself. They're actually the same guy. <laughs> you never see him together, do you? I don't know actors. <laughs> and then Jerry Maguire, you said. And then, so this is his fourth uh, role uh, behind the in the director's chair. Well, and Joel, you're pretty familiar with Cameron Crowe. There's a piece of him in all of those films. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that, you know, you think of Say Anything and you think of that, the iconic scene, right? Mm-hmm. And you know Peter Gabriel. And it just shows that in all his movies, there's such emphasis on music that it seemed like Almost Famous was just a logical next step for him. I mean, even in Jerry Maguire, when he's driving in the car and he's listening for a song to like match his mood after the successful meeting or whatever and he comes on free falling Mm -hmm. but then the hilarious thing is being the nerd that i am i know that like right before that he played one of the songs he turned down was she by graham parsons and then Uh seeing later on that cameron crow he like she by graham parsons is just not on the radio Cameron Crowe had to legit put that song specifically in that moment and then for him to later on in Almost Famous have another Graham Parsons reference mm-hmm. you know his his musical taste is throughout everything he does oh yeah I was, music is a big part of Fast Times we talked about that and his relationship with the bands that we're going to find out about in this movie was a part of the creation of that soundtrack and what he was and wasn't allowed to use. And ultimately, he wasn't that happy with the way the soundtrack turned out, even though it's still, I mean, I think it's still great, but it wasn't yeah. it wasn't what he wanted. You know, they're forcing the Eagles on him. <laughs> and nobody likes that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, music, like you said, Joel, is a big part of Say Anything, especially that iconic... Cusack with the stereo scene and all throughout and didn't uh didn't Nancy Wilson who was his wife didn't she do some of the score for say anything I, I can't don't know about say anything I know she's all over almost famous but... yeah well I think you know she she has little like bits of involvement in all of those films I mean if you're married to Nancy Wilson why not use her as well <laughs> exactly uh, and then singles is much more about the grunge ninety, like early mid nineties movement, which was not a big uh, influence for me per se. But you weren't grungy. You didn't. You I mean, I like... I had like a brief brief phase. How many flannels did you own? Seventeen. All right. Yeah. So yeah. it was it was a quick two it, years. <laughs> yeah. Which, which, during that time, 17 flannels was really not a no, lot. No, no that, yeah, I could tell that you were just dipping your toe in. <laughs> if you only had 17, forget about and it. And I had really long black, you know, hair that was just flowing, like like shares. <laughs> uh, wasn't uh, wasn't also the singles soundtrack a big deal back in like 90, the 90s? Like, wasn't that like yeah. everyone loved that soundtrack? I remember, and I didn't. Yeah, it was. I, I didn't have it, but I remember people talking about that. I had the soundtrack before I even saw the movie. Yeah. Well, let's see. It was like Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people did. It was Soundgarden. Really popular soundtrack. I think the. I can't remember how. Like successful that movie was, but the soundtrack, was like, bananas successful. Yeah, that probably outshines the movie. So yeah, music big deal. And this and then this movie. Yeah, it's about people who make music. Well. And right Before about we music. get to that, though... That's exciting. Just to touch on Jerry Maguire, I mean, Jerry Maguire was a huge A-list Hollywood movie that really pushed Cameron Crowe up to the forefront of directors at the time. Mm. I mean, you got Tom Cruise, Cruise right after Mission Impossible. All right. King of the world. All right, yeah. Jerry Maguire wins Best Supporting Actor for Cuba Gooding Jr., in the most ridiculous acceptance speech in the history of the Oscars. Oh, I have to go back and watch that. What did he do? Yeah, it's he just, was... he just, show me the money, like he does that whole bit. Oh, he does it, the bit on just, the, that's right. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how yeah, well that movie's aged, but we'll cover that uh, down the road. Sure, why not? So he's had this story, this interest, incredibly interesting story of his youth, which he hasn't fully tapped into, and... His mother has been behind the scenes, like really pushing him for about ten years to do this movie of of his this whole story of his. That the further and further he was going, he was starting to kind of move away from that. As you saw with Jerry Maguire, it's mm-hmm. kind of a different direction than his personal what his personal piece would be. Mm-hmm. So finally, he's like, "I'm going to do it. it. It's now or never. I got to do it now, or just forget it." Especially if you look at what he did after Almost Famous, hmm. none, none of that is anything like the first half of his career. Yeah, things things shifted a little bit. Um, yeah, for what he. But this is such a personal project. This is his most obviously right. His most personal. Yeah, it's about him really, right? It's a semi autobiographical. It's uh, it's autobiographical. It's, in yeah, a sense. it's he more than semi. Ch- <laughs> he just had to change details because you can't, you know. Uh, yeah, to consolidate and you know use a, a fake band and everything, but it uh, he's just capturing the the real essence of of, of his time uh, in just two short hours. I, I felt like I went through a journey with him, the character. Unless you uh, watch the bootleg version, and like, that's about three hours. Is there a three hour yeah. cut? Oh, neat! It's like two forty two, I think. I could th- I I could sense there was more going on. Yeah, and yeah. it's uh, I was debating about. Watching the bootleg or the theatrical cut. Oh, I prefer the bootleg. Uh-huh. What uh, what kind of stuff is in the bootleg that isn't in the theatrical? It's Joel. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a lot of the Francis McDormand stuff uh-huh. in the beginning. And you get yeah. And the thing I noticed because I watched both in preparing for this. Nice. And uh, you really get a lot more Penny Lane story. In the untitled bootleg cut. And I thought she's much more fleshed out as far as like what her goal is. And there's, I think it just really adds more depth. Um, Anna Paquin's character has a line in the untitled that's, uh, she said something about like, you know, she helps all these rock stars, but what do they ever do for her? And I think that's such a telling line that got cut out of the theatrical mm-hmm. release and everything. So I think you get a much more, a, a better sense with, uh, Penny Lane, but there is more of the mom stuff as well. And there's no major 
like major sequences that were cut out of the movie from the director's cut or the bootleg edition. It's just little bits of, you know, adding throughout, throughout the film. A little more character moments and things of that nature. Yeah. Well, like, uh, go ahead. Oh, uh, in, when uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Lester Bangs, is in the, the DJ uh, booth at the beginning of the movie, he goes through a lot more records, making fun of a lot more bands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I I like those little moments. It's funny, because I, I, coming back to this movie, which I probably haven't seen since I saw it the first time, um, I was expecting it to be a little more heavy-handed in the nostalgia of the time, and also like more nerdy reverent about the bands and the music but it never felt it didn't feel that way at all like for me like it um although but you saying like the bootleg had like more of you know uh, lester being being more into these bands like that's kind of stuff i would expect like a lot of it just like here's me showing how much i know about music and i'm gonna show it to you and, and vomit all this stuff and for the uninitiated it's it's kind of like it's kind of boring, you know, to, to see that kind of thing. So it seems like for me as a, a casual viewer, uh, it, it was the right length for me <laughs> in terms of avoiding that like heavy music, nerdy stuff. Yeah. It's not, uh, it's not really that bad on that front. No, it's uh, again, it's, it's service. It's as a viewer, it's like a, you get just enough of, of everything. You get a nice flavor of these guys know what they're talking about. They know their passions are very, up front, you know, what the th- like what music does for them without it being a love letter to music. Like it never it's not that heavy ham-fisted stuff. I almost expected it though. I cuz I couldn't remember, you know, I hadn't seen it. Um but it's just a wonderful it's a wonderful film that uh just touches all the right all the right things. <laughs> Touching on a a keyword that you said earlier was consolidation. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what he did in getting this as a cohesive story because Cameron Crowe toured for how long was it Joel like two years I, I don't actually know the the, the the true story behind it all well he toured with any, so many different bands too the, the mm-hmm. main band was the Almond Brothers and then he also spent time with Frampton and Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones and lots of other bands. But I think some of the key elements that you see in Stillwater is specifically from the Almond Brothers. Mm. Some... Yeah. And I think the uh, the Russell Hammond character, I think, is a lot of uh, Peter Frampton as well. Yeah. Because Peter Frampton was a member of Humble Pie, and then, but no one knows that he was in Humble Pie. People just know Peter Frampton right. when he had Frampton Comes Alive as his big, you know, hit album. So I think a lot of that, that Russell is, uh, can't play all that he can play with the rest of the band and that he's going to end his looks have become a problem and all that stuff. I mm-hmm. think a lot of that was from Peter Frampton, who also plays Humble Pie's road manager in the movie. <laughs> nice little cameo there. Yeah. And it's funny because Frampton had wanted to act for so long and just never had a real opportunity. So finally he gets uh he gets to work for the guy that was almost like an additional roadie for him like 30 years yeah. later. 
And didn't Cameron Crowe, I think we have to look it up, but didn't he put Glenn Fry in Jerry Maguire? Yeah. Glenn Fry from the Eagles? Yep. Uh, yeah, he did. Yeah. He was uh, Dennis Wilburn in Jerry Maguire. He took all these bands and kind of merged them into one, which is Stillwater. I worked in Tower Records for a little bit, and I remember a guy coming in, and he, he was he's like, I figured it out. Stillwater is actually Poco. The band Poco. You you ever heard of hear of them? I've never heard never of heard of Poco. They, they, they were, they were uh, I don't I can't remember if they actually had a hit or or what it was, but he was he was pretty sure it was Poco that Stillwater was a direct <laughs> reference to. And I was like, from what I hear, man, it's just uh, you know a composite of all the different bands he toured with. He's like, I'm pretty sure it's Poco. I'm like, okay, or Poco. Yeah. You're, you're like, right. Okay, man, Poco yeah. it is. You're right. You're right, dude. <laughs> It'll be 1995 for that. But referencing what you said earlier, calling the the bootleg cut untitled, but that was like that was the original title of the film, right? Before it was almost famous, it was either going to be untitled or yeah, the the uncool or or what is cool? Something I just knew it as untitled. Yeah. Um. So that that's so that's the name given to the bootleg cut. So if we reference untitled again, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Anyway, this cast is pretty freaking amazing. And this is a movie that I think some of them you see their best work. Like I'm not a Jason Lee fan. No, I'm not a big have you Kevin watched? Smith fan. Well, but have you seen My Name Is Earl? I've seen My Name Is Earl. It's very good in that. <laughs> Two episodes was enough for me. <laughs> All right, fine. <laughs> but I think he's really, um, he's perfect for that role. Yeah, he shines. It's Jeff Beebe. And in the, the creation of the, the band itself, I mean, I guess it has a somewhat stereotypical plot line of the band is getting successful and, you know, one of them is coming to the forefront as the face of the band and the rest are kind of this gelatinous mixture in the background. Mm-hmm. And I guess prior to the start of this story, Jeff Beebe was the face of the band. He's the lead singer. He wears a shirt of the Jeff Beebe band. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, wasn't that their original name, right? Yeah, yeah. But he still, I just find it hilarious that he's still wearing the shirt, <laughs> yeah. though. In one, of, in one of the scenes towards the end, he has the Jeff Beebe band shirt. <laughs> yeah. But for me... Which I think plays nicely. And when they have the whole argument about the shirt earlier in the movie, mm-hmm. and then at the end, he's wearing the, the Jeff Beebe band yeah, shirt. Yeah, he's the star. Yeah, that's what they were... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Not not one of the out of focus <laughs> yeah, yeah, guys. Yeah. But at this point, Russell Hammond's starting to take over and be the super popular one, uh, and and kind of getting all the credit for their success right right now in this story. Yeah. So we follow Billy Crudup. Crudup or Crudup? Crudup. I say Crudup. I think it's Crudup. Right. Uh, but yeah, he's. Uh, I I forget how much I like him <laughs> until I see him on screen. Uh, in this movie, I was like, "Oh yeah, Billy Crudup, he's great." Well, they all—all all the band members, uh, two of which were actual, you know, musicians—they mm-hmm. really feel like a band. Mm-hmm. Like you, that's them. That is them singing. That's them doing everything, uh, totally under the tutelage of Peter Frampton. Because yeah, Frampton runs the whole show of, of like the musical side of this film, right? Like it, he could, oh yeah, he, yeah. He, he and Cameron like wrote a lot of the music like for the original songs and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. 
uh, and Nancy Wilson, and Nancy Wilson, and then Peter pl- and played on those tracks, right? Like, right? Didn't Frampton play on those tracks? And he re- and he trained them to like become these characters and become this band, which you know was a concern that these guys were just going to be actors, you know, look like actors in a band and not feel like a real band but they totally do and that's part of the what what makes this movie work so well is because you can kind of get past that that you know pitfall like right away Mm -hmm. well i remember i think in the middle of watching the movie the first time I, i think i asked my friend like was Stillwater a real band? Like, <laughs> I don't know, you know, and they could have been as far as I knew, you know. Absolutely. I think they, I, I'm kind of surprised that they just never put out another album. Because you got the, uh, when you bought the uh, the DVD, the untitled DVD, you got a Stillwater CD that came oh, with cool. it. Oh, yeah, I have that. I listened to it. That's a full, like, album of the, of the all that song. Oh, it's like it's like an EP. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like, it's like six, six or eight songs. That's still cool. That's cool. Because you don't you you only get a taste of all their songs in the movie. They don't you don't sit through an entire performance of any song. Right. At least on the theatrical cut. Uh, so you get snippets of their concerts, um, and they mm-hmm. sound like great, like really cool tunes. Yeah, Fever Dog is like their main hit, and that's you know, and you hear that throughout the whole movie. You, you know, they keep kind of going back to it you hear it being played in concerts and mm-hmm. uh but yeah there's a number of good tracks on there they definitely could have done another album i'll have to check it out i want to borrow your copy okay i'll mail it to you <laughs> oh wait no i'm right here just let me... I'll, I'll mail it to you okay <laughs> just borrow it support the u.s post office <laughs> you are a patriot running for president Mm, 2096. Oh, okay. You're announcing he's running. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm starting my pre-campaign. Um, who else is in this movie? So those guys are really. I I can't really remember what prior to this, what Billy Crudup had done before this. I think he'd been doing a lot of indie films, but he wasn't an established name yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at his thing. I, I mean, nothing, nothing big before this. Yeah. Jason Lee is coming off of Mallrats and Chasing Amy, and he's got the super popular kind of Kevin Smith crowd coming with him. Patrick Fugit, who is essentially Cameron Crowe, was a total newcomer. And what works so great about his performance in the movie is that it's real, Uh. that he's really experiencing this process of becoming a star, being in a big Hollywood movie, just like his character is joining up with this with this band and kind of going through the whole rock and world rock and roll world uh and and what makes cameron crowe's films or at least up through almost famous is how genuine and authentic that they are mm-hmm. and that's this has authenticity just at its core and all throughout this film Everything that happens with these guys is completely believable, comes from a real place, and really did happen. Well, yeah, I, I, it's it's the perfect it's the perfect formula to like go see the these characters all through his eyes. 
Um, because I don't think he's not he Williams in every scene. Like every, I don't think there's a scene with other than like the the very end. There's a uh, couple. There's a couple short, quick scenes without him. I guess so. Yeah, but he he has to carry almost everything. Well, he's present, oh, present. for everything. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. may not be like in the like. There's a scene between uh, Penny Lane and Russell Hammond where they first you right, know yeah. hook up. That is separate, but he's like right outside the door. Right. Um. And there's a couple of others. Yeah. You know, and like with his mom when she calls and she's talking to Faruza Balk and Right, right, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, you're right. Little moments like that. And 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 it's like a scene like that though is is great. There's all these there's all these scenes where it's just two characters talking to each other and having a genuine conversation. Um and it keep and it keeps happening throughout and you just I, you keep falling in love deeper with each character. Um, as it goes, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, his style is just so perfect uh, for this kind of, uh, for this type of story. Well, and you know that's that's what I uh, am attracted to most in all movies is it does it feel authentic? Mm-hmm. And this absolutely does. Even even stupid action movies like <laughs> if it feels. I don't know if it feels right, then I can enjoy it. Mm-hmm. To me, like the Fast and the Furious, feel ridiculous. Mm. I mean, and they're—I guess they, you know—they're meant to be that way. But like the GI Joe movies, the Transformer movies, it just doesn't. There's nothing real to latch onto. Sure, yeah. Uh, it's my understanding those Fast and Furious movies become quite a, a a nice story about family after like the third one or something. They start they, the characters get more to do character wise, eh. but you eh. know. I don't know. Have you seen those, Joel? The Fast and Furious movies. I I like it when they uh, kind of transition to be more of like heist movies. Mm. The one I forget it was Fast and Furious Five. I really liked that's a lot because it was so ridiculous. That oh, that's like Tokyo Drift. Drag. No. They're all Tokyo You're, Drift no, to me. No, no. I mean, in in the Fast and the Furious universe, I think Tokyo Drift really is number five or something like that. <laughs> They did some oh, weird yeah, thing with, with the There's timeline. a chronology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's supposed to be uh, an epic reveal later on in the series or something like that. Yeah. Uh, well, I can't wait to one day dive into all those. Let's go deep. Um, but getting back to the cast, we haven't even touched on half of the amazing cast that we have. I know. Who else is in this movie? My, uh, see my previous question. Let's talk about <laughs> Kate Hudson for a second. Okay. Coming out of nowhere. Who is this girl? She's just. Who is she? Where'd she come she's from? She's Hollywood royalty yes, on this show, at least. Royalty. Absolutely. She is the uh, daughter of Goldie Hawn. Goldie Hawn. And Kurt Russell. I believe adopted by Kurt Russell. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, not birth. So, Kurt Russell is hanging around the set for a lot of this movie, as you know. Kurt was around. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess yeah. he would be. Yeah, so That's cool. I think you can probably credit a lot of this movie's success to the fact that Kurt was just present. Yeah, yeah, of course. If just sprinkling a little Kurt dust. Yeah, his energy is... I mean, Kurt has a rock and roll vibe to him just constantly. Yeah. Well, yeah. he played Elvis. Yeah, he gets it. He understands rock and roll. I mean, and he's you know best friends with John Carpenter, who's also a rock and roll god. If you didn't know that about him. Is he a him. rock and roll god? Yeah, yes. Yeah. 
He's a rock and roll guy. Yes. All right. 80s rock and roll. Okay, got it. <laughs> Check out the Big Trouble in Little China, uh, the theme song. Is that a rock and roll tune? That's a... <laughs> it's comparable. He is a to... wizard with a synthesizer. He's a composer, right? <laughs> no, he actually has a band. Oh, right. With Nick uh-huh. Castle and uh, Tommy Lee Wallace. Fair enough. Yeah. But anyway, all that I connects to make Almost Famous brilliant. The end. It, it only helps. It only <laughs> helps. No, but Kate Hudson was perfect casting. So many of these roles like, were just cast perfectly. These guys fit the roles uh, incredibly well. Especially her not having done anything like of significance prior to this. Yeah, she wasn't, you know, she was just, her career was just taking off, I think. Well, and what Crow would say when she would walk in the room, she was going to audition for one of the smaller parts, and he knew immediately that she was Penny Lane. Because she did the same thing. She walks in, and everybody watches her. She's just flowing from, like, commanding the room, Mm. flowing from person to person, uh, and that was it. So I think this is really her career performance. Yeah, probably, yeah, I think so. I mean, she's become a big star and done big movies and lots of romantic comedies. Mm-hmm. Lots of them. Yeah. Too many of them. No, never But, <laughs> but she, well, she, yeah, she, she works steady from this movie onward. She, uh, we, she, we grew up with her. She grew up with us. She grew up with us. <laughs> uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. So good, and and really, a small part in the movie, an influential part, mm-hmm. but not a lot of screen time. Yeah, but every yeah, but every second he's on is uh, is very important, right? It drives William to like go on this journey. I, and I it, love his mantra at the beginning of the 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 movie where he's talking about just kind of rock and roll just being like gobbledygook i think that's one thing that uh he says in the untitled version that you know it takes the letter by the box tops is less than two minutes long and <laughs> take they can do what jethro toll can't do in seven minutes huh. and i just think he has this great outlook that totally influences william throughout the whole movie of that these guys may want to be gods but you can't treat them like that because that's not good for rock and roll and your job is to be good for rock and roll as a music critic, as a rock writer. Your alliance is to the music, not the individual band members. You're not there to make stars. And he tells him not to become friends with them. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And Lester Bangs was a real person that he seemed to have captured, like, his spirit. Yeah, that's one thing that this movie never... I never went back and actually read any Lester Bangs stuff. And that's one thing I, I still need to do. I was just thinking about it. I'm like, oh, I still have... It, the movie's been out since 2000, and I haven't gone and read, you know, articles by Lester Bangs or anything like that. Uh, definitely a, a missing part of my knowledge base. Yeah, because he, he was a writer... It was my understanding. Like, a legendary rock critic, right? Mm-hmm. For Rolling Stone and Cream and all that. And he passed away in 1982, right around when Fast Times came out, Mm. uh, but was a huge piece of Cameron Crowe's 
uh, you know, young adult life. And, uh, and, and it was great that he was able to, you know, keep the essence of that character without really changing it at all. And Philip Seymour Hoffman at this point in 2000 is like one of the top character actors in Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, around this time, he, it felt like he was in every other movie that was coming out. <laughs> He was all over even the, Twister. Yeah, he was all over the late '90s, early 2000s. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, what, such a great energy, and so and he's, I forget how youthful he once looked. You know, but, I mean, it's not that he it, that energy as Lester Bangs, and it's so perfect, and it's such a, a subdued kind of performance um, that mm-hmm. everything he says has such poignancy, and it's a, you know he he's he's filled with the writers. The, the you know he's well written i guess um and just brings uh, a lot of that energy out and, and all of his advice and he's so quotable uh, basically oh my god he's yeah. so quotable in terms of like you can put you could stitch half of what he says like on a pillow and it's it'll sit there and inspire you uh for the rest of your life if you if you really want to uh you know the the that that and of course i think we that that one the, the only real currency we have is what you show someone when you're uncool or something like that. I mean, yeah. what a great, yeah. what a great line. Just ah, love that. Uh, such a great character there. And then the biggest presence in the film, <laughs> I think in real life as well, was Cameron Crowe's mother and William Miller's mother played by the amazing Frances McDormand. Sure. She's great in this. Right. Yeah, I mean, she is she wonderful is the dominant part of his life, uh, and which I think was actually true that um, she had him skip grades, and that whole storyline of him be, not realizing he was as young as he was did that really was happen? a real thing. So you know, he yeah. thought he was a different age for a little while. Yeah, I think it's a little a little accentuated in the movie, but uh-huh. but that was a real thing. Wow. And the scene with the where he's in the shower. And the older kids are making... Oh, oh, oh. is that in the regular cut? They're in the bath? No, that's in the untitled. Oh, okay. okay, so in the untitled cut, uh-huh. there's a scene where he's in the, you know, in the shower at the gym, you uh-huh. know, after gym class, uh-huh. and all the other kids are making fun of him because he has no pubes. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> and- oh, that's hilarious. Well, yeah, they only they only allude to that when he's just in front of the mirror and they're all grooming and they have facial hair and stuff. Oh, yeah, he's just like and he just looks like this little so, kid in like a t-shirt. Like so, there's an extended sequence right there. Got it. All right, more fleshing it out, more exactly. moments. I see. Yeah, I, I I highly recommend the bootleg cut if you're a fan of the movie mm-hmm. and you haven't seen it. Definitely check it out because it's like forty minutes without feeling like forty minutes. Mm-hmm added to the movie but it's just kind of like spread throughout okay so there's not like whole chunks of entire scenes it's like tiny little scenes added. there's like extensions of other scenes yeah it, yeah okay it doesn't change like the energy of the movie at all mm-hmm. i could have watched another hour of it so mm-hmm. uh but francis mcdormand was coming off of fargo and probably at the height of her career until again the last couple of years and now she she's finally won best actress and yeah. uh, well deserved yeah a, a great uh, career oscar for her mm-hmm. good performance too for that yeah. for, yeah. for that role sure yeah it was but i mean you know she's like paul newman she's winning an oscar for 
lots of other roles that uh, she didn't win it for. So. Yeah. I, I thought the the mother character looking at her in 2019 was really interesting mm-hmm. because she seems like so liberal in some ways and then so conservative when it comes to the drugs and the rock and roll yeah. that I was trying to think about her in the, like, would she be a Democrat? Would she be a Republican in 2019? Mm, right. Like, and I, I was, it was, she's almost like a contradiction in today's terms, mm-hmm. where in the, you know, 1973, it might have been totally normal for someone to have those wanting to celebrate Christmas, not in December, mm-hmm. but like being anti-rock and roll, where it's like, okay, well, now I associate being like anti-drugs, anti-rock and roll, being very conservative. And then her other aspects, you know, she's cooking soy cutlets in the, uh, in the yeah. kitchen um as being hugely liberal and so i just kind of i didn't i was like i would i still think in 2019 she would be probably more liberal but i just you know i thought it was really kind of interesting of viewing her that character from 2019 at, yeah you know right now well i think i think you kind of see her you know she everybody evolves and they change throughout the movie you see it with with every single character, really, they all um, yeah. are in a different place from the beginning, which is what makes a great story. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty crazy growth. Um, but yeah, she's grown, and she, you know, didn't want to let him leave the nest. And then, you know, her daughter, played by Zoe Deschanel, left, and then he follows like immediately after that, and. Um, she's forced to let him go and she you know some of the greatest scenes in the movie are her calling and checking on him and wanting to talk to him. yeah yeah <laughs> and then, freaking out russell hammond yeah <laughs> well and he's doing exactly what she told him to do earlier in the movie when she's saying take those couple of extra years take a look around go to europe or something i mean greenville Tennessee isn't, you know, Europe, right. but mm-hmm. she's doing exactly what she wanted him to do, just not in the way she wants him to do it or with the people she wants him to do it. But he's again, she raised him right through the whole movie. And he's again doing exactly what she said she wanted him to do. And it's funny with like her being kind of liberal and conservative, but like she knows he's smart. So he needs to spread his wings and fly and experience things. But he's got to become a lawyer. Like you're you're too smart to yes. do anything but be a lawyer, <laughs> and like, but as a educator, it is it is strange that like that's she's you know forcing a, a job on him, um, well, but also giving him that freedom um, at a young age, and like you said, doing exact, letting him do exactly what she told him to do, um, and so it's got to be like a struggle. You see that struggle for her as a mom. She's she's stuck on the other end of that phone and just trying to. Um, make sure her, her boy's okay without being um i don't know kind of uh, a nag about it like she know well, she probably thinks he's gonna end up like the daughter you know and not talking to her at all that she's pushing another one of her children mm-hmm. away but it's like no he's listens to you and he he obviously loves you and cares about you and he's trying to do his best to live up to what you want but he does want to also forge his own path and so I think it's both of them kind of coming to grips with like, okay, how can we respect each other but be, you know, individuals as mm-hmm. well? Well, she's actually, it's kind of the perfect model of a parent in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Because while she's been completely 
restrictive of him when he's a little kid, she respects him enough to see what he's how mature he is that she lets him go and he doesn't like get into drugs and doesn't become an alcoholic and doesn't while he's in this world of theirs he's still a little bit separate and he doesn't get sucked down into the hole i mean by the end he's completely drained and exhausted but it's all emotionally and not you know getting caught up with the same exact things that they're doing and that's incredible that he was able to like stick to it and not you know partake in all that stuff well yeah because i mean his his role and his the the way he is and being a journalist it's, it's he's observing the world and this world that he's entered you know he's he, his biggest sin was becoming friends with them but not really living their lifestyle like he, he didn't say oh my god this is what i want to do or be i'm gonna live like this this is the best you know um living like rock stars um or like the groupies like she's he's not into it you know he's band-aids the band-aids band yes. right yes <laughs> now joel down in nicaragua you've got a lot of band-aids don't you I can neither confirm nor deny that statement. <laughs> we know what's really going on down there. No, but I think one of the reasons that the mom probably eventually lets him leave is that she is afraid if she if she doesn't, he is going to do it anyway and just completely rebel and not. So it's again kind of her probably learning from what she considers a mistake with her daughter and trying to rectify that with with William instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Like she, if she she tries to chain him to the house, he's just gonna leave her at the first chance he gets. Whether he goes on that tour or whether it's a year later when he can drive or whatever, it's like. Yeah. And she know, and she knows how smart he is and how she raised him. It is like this is that test. Like she she thinks he's special and can probably do this. And you know she puts a restriction four days, and then he probably tours for a few weeks at least, or yeah. a month, or yeah, more. Before, yeah. Like. Uh, I don't know. He can only miss one yeah. test. <laughs> like he didn't even go to his own graduation. Uh, yeah, because you don't know. You don't really ever know how long it's been since he's been back home, right? I mean, when he finally comes home at the end, it seems like it's been a long time. No, I want to. I want to say like a month. I want to say it's like it's been a solid month or two. Uh, I would say at least that. Yeah. Yeah. If, if not, you know, longer, but. Yeah. You, you never really find out for sure one yeah. way. Well, that's the funny thing. Like, there's so many details that aren't necessary, but I am curious about. I'm like, how did he get the? How did he, how did he transmit payment? And how did he get paid for this? And how did he send his article? And mm-hmm. how does the the Mojo machine, you know, tell effects work? <laughs> and all that. I just it, none of the details need to be discussed. But no. I, I I remain curious throughout. <laughs> Like how do they handle like the billing and the all that stuff? How they did he send it to Rolling Stone? Did, did who's covering this? Uh, obviously, there'd be a band man, like a man, a, you know, n- either the manager himself. Uh, is it Nick? Was the character name? No. What was the character name? Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's his name. No, uh, yeah, Dick. Nick. Dick. Yeah. Dick. 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 Yeah, he's probably handling some of the some of that. I don't know. And obviously, in a tour situation, there'd be a, another twenty people handling things behind the scenes traveling with them right uh yeah you don't see the road crew a lot i think there's the scene in max's kansas city where when they're in new york and uh 
you, they're at that long table, and you just kind of assume some of those guys are the road yeah, crew. Yeah, they must be. These are these are people that these other characters would talk to all the time and know, but have they have no bearing on the story. So, right, you right. don't you don't you don't need to show it. Well, I mean, there's so many characters already. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't need to introduce any more because yeah. you've got you've got the band, you've got him, you've got all the band aids, which there are what four main ones, I think. Yeah, like a three core a group of three, and then the other one who was there. Yeah, it's Kate. Well, Kate Hudson, Faruza Balk, Anna Paquin, and, and then, uh, uh, Bijou Phillips. Oh, and Bijou. Yeah, yeah. That's right. sorry. And then maybe one and other then one. That, the yeah the. When he's talking on the phone, uh, like Emily from Denver, who's clairvoyant. Oh, right, yeah. right, 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 right. <laughs> but I mean, he goes through so much in this, you know, period of time with the band. You know, like you said, he's he's meant to be an observer, and he does stay that way. But he he really does get sucked into their world, and he falls in love, and and ex- has so many of his own experiences. Yeah. through this you know he has sex for the first time mm-hmm. obviously he's in love with penny lane mm-hmm. uh and that's you know that's that ending with in the airport that uh that gets me every time <laughs> uh the which ending where where they part ways oh, oh okay yeah gotcha yeah and he's running down yeah. the uh he's the concourse yeah. yeah he's running down the concourse you got that great nancy wilson score ah just mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a heart sucker so a heart sucker <laughs> a heart sucker that's what the band-aids are for heart that's what oh jeez. the heart sucker <laughs> oh my god oh and no. i was the lead one <laughs> back in 81 78 uh, yeah, I adore. I, think, I I adored that little that story. His and his how his crush turned into like this genuine care and love, and he saves her life. <laughs> he yeah. kisses her when she's unconscious, which is not good. Yeah, that, <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't hold up. That, that scene does right not there. hold up. Admits his love, and she's literally like limp, like <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, and uh, rewatching it. Cameron Crowe does that close-up of her feet just dragging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that doesn't make William look any yeah, better. Yeah. <laughs> no. When he's just kissing. And, and he slut shames her while he's, you know, about to kiss her. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm like, in 2019, like, if uh, you, that, that scene doesn't need to be there. And I, do, I don't, uh, hopefully, I don't think Cameron Crowe would write it the same way if he's writing this movie I'm in 2019. Sure it's just not necessary. no i think it's just a product of the of the time yeah you know yeah. it's it, it's supposed it's, to be more innocent than it is or whatever and obviously it is it is um, it is you, and yeah. that's its intention but, yeah so you know but it's certainly not uh not something you'd replicate today if you were to write any scene like that definitely not so uh but the, uh but that's what they did in the 70s yeah. man <laughs> well and i mean obviously at the core of the movie is is poor treatment of women. <laughs> yeah. But that's yeah. but but it works for this because that's it's a snapshot of that time period and these this group of people and that's the way it was then. I mean it, I don't know if it still is that way in the world of music now, but uh, it absolutely was then. Mm-hmm. So it's I not think part it's, of the uh 
Go ahead, Joel. The attraction of the whole story is that desire to be cool. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Russell Hammond gives him that whole basically like, hey, we're shitty people talk. It's better. We're shitty people. Don't let a million people know how shitty we are, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, but he's being invited into this world. And so it's kind of like that. Well, the cool kids said I shouldn't do this. So I guess I shouldn't, even though he knows that what they're doing is probably wrong i assume um he wants to so badly belong because he doesn't have you know friends at all it doesn't seem like you know lester bang seems to be his only friend Mm -hmm. um and so being kind of invited into this world where it's like hey let us just be kind of these dicks while we're on the road don't let everyone know about this is that cool okay yeah absolutely they're all every character wants to be seen cooler than they actually are mm-hmm. uh, even lester banks like <laughs> that you know he's pretty cool but you know you see when he's walking with william in the beginning and they he kind of wants to split up with him yeah and then he's like but i gotta wait for the bus <laughs> oh is that and again oh. that and that's one of the great uh edits that camera crow made between the uh untitled version and the theatrical because in the theatrical, he says, I can't just stand around, sit here, st- talking to my many fans. And then it cuts to them in the diner. <laughs> yeah, right. And then in the untitled, it goes on a little bit longer where there's just awkward where neither of them are leaving. Yeah. And then William's like, do you need a ride? He's like, no, nah, man, I take the bus. <laughs> and then it cuts to the diner. Oh, and I was like, but I think the, the cut he decided for the theatrical was so good. It mm-hmm. just added that, that juxtaposition right there. And it just... The joke landed so well where I, I think in the Untitled it doesn't land as well. Yeah. Well, it's just a peek into Lester Bangs just a little bit more. Yeah. But obviously, William Miller like just wants to be seen as cool by the band. Like you said, he doesn't have any friends. He's got his mom and Lester Bangs and then the band, and that's it. So... Yeah, you know he wants to be viewed as cool by them and earn their trust. And Jeff, Jeff Beebe, of course, wants to be seen as the coolest in the band. He is so thirsty during that whole <laughs> the whole movie. Yeah. He wants that interview so badly. <laughs> and then Russell Russell Hammond kind of is the coolest, but is having that conflict of that because that's not. You know, who is the real Russell Hammond? He's just kind of fucking his life up all along the way. Yeah, he's struggling with himself the whole time. And, it, it you know, he spirals and it gets into a dangerous situation. He want, He's like, he looks for something real, but he goes gets trashed and, and takes acid at a party. Like, mm-hmm. And then he's talking about how everything's real and, you know, just that deep philosophical thing. Like, he's just, he's saying all the things he wants to believe but is like having a like a hard time living that life you know Mm -hmm. it's just funny like him and william are walking and you never focus on the background but you see more and more people just start following them just because they oh they see russell Uh, right and there's not you don't even have to reference these people and it's it's tight enough that you if you weren't paying attention you may not even notice the background um i think it's a nice uh um thing of like he's just looking for something real and he can't because he's surrounded by fans like no yeah. matter what he's he's always screwed um and then you know he and then talking with uh, william's mother you know she reminds him you can still do 
go do your best. You know, you could still you could still redeem yourself or whatever she says. Yeah. All these things like he's getting from the right places, um, you know, and it's like would if he could have Penny Lane, like, do you think like that's what he's after? Like, would that complete him or is it I think he. You know, Penny shows that it's like it's not going to be her that completes him. It's his. It's going to be mm-hmm. like him doing the right thing and like establishing real friendships or whatever. Right. It, it's not just about this love with some teenage girl because mm-hmm. um, she has her own life to live, her own adventures. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. And that's interesting. By the by, the end of the movie, kind of what he does to William, and the way he screws him over yeah and then right at the end is forced to uh do the right thing yeah. by fate <laughs> yeah and penny lane yeah because i think it was he thinks penny lane's the answer to all of his problems mm-hmm. and she knows that's not true she figures it out by yeah. the end too you know she almost killed herself because of her emotions and then living that having access to those things from being you know around these these people and it's like, I mean, she said when we meet her, she was she was ready to go to Morocco. She needs a new crowd, but you know, mm-hmm. this is the crowd that. Loves well, she's her. Re- she's retired. Yeah, yeah, she's retired at sixteen <laughs> of being a, a, a group. Wait, you mean eighteen? Uh, no, <laughs> no, I, no, sixteen. 16. Yeah. yeah. Well, they keep backing yeah. it younger in that that scene. Yeah. With uh, William. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really liked uh, the inclusion of her wanting to go to Morocco. Mm-hmm. Because it's such a good uh, rock and roll destination. <laughs> because William Burroughs first went to Morocco, I think, in like the 50s. And then the Rolling Stones were there when they were had all the drug problems, legal problems in England. They all went to Morocco as well. Uh-huh. So I was like, just that inclusion of Morocco. Yes, it's not, it, it is fancy and, you know, exotic for, you know, Penny Lane from someone from San Diego, but there's also a good kind of rock and roll lineage. Like there's a reason why she's choosing Morocco. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. oh I like that. Yeah. Well, David's actually got two properties in Morocco. I'm selling them. I'm and it's an underground tunnel from right at Recon Cinema Studios yeah. right to both of those properties. Yeah, I barely use that tunnel. I barely go there anymore. So I'm just going to get rid of them, I think. Um, they're, they're on the market for $50 million each. So I don't know. Okay. If you know anybody. I'll spread the for, word. For Moroccan. Yeah, if you're really ready to let yeah. go of those. Well, and obviously Penny Lane's trying to be something that she isn't. You know, she's she's trying to portray herself as this older much older than she is, wise, experienced muse, mm-hmm. which is not how the guys really view them. Right. Which is really like the sad part of the story is that these these women really do love the band. They love the music. That's really what they're in love with. Uh, but the guys just use them mm-hmm. and then dump them when they're done with them yeah when they, they when they're they, when they have to be around their girlfriends or ex-wives and all that they can't be around because mm-hmm. russell told him like i mean maybe it was just about him but he's like don't you can't write about these people because uh, mm-hmm. yeah we don't want a million people to know that we do this yeah uh like, well and everybody does know but it's just the unspoken thing yeah the stories that uh, and rumors that you know reverberate down, but you're not going to report on it necessarily, or he's afraid it's going to be reported. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, look at these scumbag degenerates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Did you catch the uh, Mark Marin cameo? Yeah, Mark Marin, the, the manager that uh, almost electrocuted Russell. Yeah. 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 Um, I had no idea. It took me forever because I listened to his What the Fuck podcast. Yeah. And he always starts every episode with Lock the Gates. Yeah. And so I'm a fan of the podcast, fan of Almost Famous, and it wasn't until oh. I watched it this last time that I finally put two and two together. Oh, yeah. That that's why he says lock the gates in the podcast is a reference to his character um, in Almost Famous, and I felt like a big old dummy. hilarious. I haven't listened to Marin in a long time. He, he, he had pulled the audio directly from the movie uh, in the early days. I don't know if he, he probably still uses it, uh, him screaming lock the gates. That's funny. Uh, uh, Mitch Hedberg also uh, was one yes. of the... Uh, managers in that poker scene. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, he was the. Yeah, he was with the Eagles. Yeah, the Eagles uh, manager. So I did not catch that. So like uh, these comedians making these appearances, um, just interesting aside. Like it's not like yeah. Mitch Hedberg was like an actor, you know. Well, and the uh, the roadie for the Allman Brothers. Uh, what was his name? Red Dog. Red Dog. Yeah. Oh yeah, who is that? That's Red Zach Dog. Ward. That you know from a Christmas story. Oh. Oh. The bully. He's the bully? Yeah. Oh, no kidding. But I mean he's still I mean he still acts regularly. He's in tons of movies. But yeah, yeah. uh huh. it was uh good to see that face pop up here. And that was Red Dog was a real guy. Like he was uh, apparently a legendary uh character in the in the rock and roll world and was the uh Allman Brothers head roadie. Can can you guys explain to me like what's like you know when like they're in the hotel and then William stops and he just stops and a, a couple are singing to each other was that supposed to be people is that supposed to that is Graham Parson and Emmy Lou Harris oh. okay so it's actually um a, a song or a singer songwriter named Pete Droge or something like that and that's actually his song it's not a Graham Parsons song or anything like ah, that okay. But um, if you listen, if you have watched it, Almost Famous with the commentary, you have Cameron Crowe saying that that's his ode to Graham Parsons and Emmy Lou Harris. And so mm-hmm. Graham Parsons was the one who originally kind of brought up Emmy Lou Harris. So she sang on both of his solo albums. And then when he passed away, she went on to do um, her start her solo career. Uh-huh. And that the song she sings, uh, one of her hits is Boulder to Birmingham, which is all about Graham Parsons. Oh, okay, got it. I knew I knew it was obviously somebody, but I didn't know who that would be just by that. Yeah. Huh. There's so many. Yeah, I, I didn't pick it up roles. the first time either. And I, I didn't pick it up the first time I saw it. I didn't know it was supposed to be Graham Parsons and Emmy Lou Harris until I watched the commentary. And then I was like, oh, that makes so much more sense. And then later on when I saw him put that song, the song She in Jerry Maguire, I was like, ah, oh, Cameron Crowe does love him some Graham Parsons. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, and then Kevin Sussman, the actor, is credited in the movie, and he's he's in it for half a second out front. But did he have a larger role in the young cut? He he played Lenny. Kevin, he's the guy from Big Bang. Yeah, you right? know him as the the comic book oh, store owner from Big yeah, Bang. Yeah, he's one of the one of the yeah. fans. I think one of the guy fans. Yeah, like um, uh, Jay Baruchel. Like Jay Baruchel. Yeah, but who looks like a baby in this movie? Yeah, he's like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but like I didn't. But I don't remember. I didn't remember Kevin Sussman from earlier in the movie. I only saw him re- when he uh, in New York. In New York, when um, 
his wife when Russell's wife. Yeah, no, no, there's yeah. in the bootleg. There's no expanded role for any of those guys, really. So he must not have like if he because he's credited in the and he's, you know he doesn't have any speaking lines or anything. So whatever, maybe it all ended up on the cutting room floor. But they yeah, still... there's still other scenes. Like there's a whole sequence where uh, William Miller goes in the bathroom and finds Jeff Beebe buying coke. Oh. And there's a whole like cocaine addiction storyline oh, with geez. Jeff Beebe that they they shot but cut out. I see. But I I really would like to see that scene because apparently he goes in the bathroom to have some private moment and is surprised to find Beebe in there. Uh, like buying coke from his dealer mm-hmm. and BB's just as surprised to see him and they both have this like awkward silence and they're just like hey 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 uh-huh. <laughs> like, the three of them yeah oh interesting <laughs> uh it's i think that might have might have worked but it didn't i don't think it was going to fit in anywhere in the movie got it yeah cuz there's the one reference where he says or Russell Hammond asks him if he's doing coke again Right, and exactly. That, that's the only reference to oh, it. I see. Well, so what's uh, what's your guys' favorite scene in the movie? Do you have the, one? The one favorite scene? Uh, I don't know. Um, I kind of like the uh, when he first gets in at the beginning to for the Sabbath Stillwater show when he comes mm-hmm. in with Stillwater. And just kind of like you, I you do get that feeling of like a whole new world has just opened up. And there's I forget what song cues right there, but with the song choice right there is is completely perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, just as he's walking in, and you, I feel like you know I've felt that before, but I can't really place where it was. Mm-hmm. But you kind of just like oh, this whole Magic Kingdom has just opened up to you. I just I really like the the feeling in that mm-hmm. scene. Um. I liked I liked after he saved Penny's life and they they're walking through Central Park and it's their their final big mm-hmm. scene together and uh, yeah I, I like that a lot just it, it it closes up their story you know and uh, you see where they where they've each arrived you know yeah everything's complete yeah uh, it was just a really nice it's just it's always nice with Penny talking to him the two yeah. of them together is always great yeah that's um, my favorite is where they split up in the airport. And that that moment where he's chasing the airplane, yeah, I cry like a baby every wow. time. Wow! But there's but there's so many great scenes. Mm-hmm. I mean, the tiny dancer scene mm-hmm. is is oh god, yeah, yeah. There was well, there was friends of ours from college that uh, definitely would break up at that scene. Um, the airplane, the airplane mm-hmm. crash or almost crash. Oh yeah, yeah. classic. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty great. Which was Jimmy Fallon a, killed a man in Dearborn, Michigan. Oh yeah, Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> That's right. He had a hit and run. I don't know if it's alive or dead. I just drove off. <laughs> now, what band, Joel? Do you remember what band that really happened to? Like that really happened to? Uh... I, I don't. But I just remember in the theaters when that happens, and uh, Russell Hammond starts singing Peggy Sue. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just thought that was so witty because I'm like, oh, he's referencing Buddy Holly, Richie Valance, and the Big Bopper. Like, oh, yeah. oh, that's so like a rock and roll inside joke. Yep. I just thought that was so witty. But on the but yeah, commentary, I don't know which band actually happened. Uh, he's got his 
Cameron Crowe has his mom on the commentary and he's talking, he reveals on the commentary that that really did happen with him. And I, I want to say it was the Allman brothers and they all did start confessing, you know, things just like they do in the movie. And his mom was not aware of that. <laughs> uh, Her reaction's really funny. That's funny. Uh, actually, it looks like he was with Alice Cooper when that happened. If I'm okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, in real life, that's what Alice Cooper. Yeah, the the band. Interesting. But that's such a great scene. And then, <laughs> the thing that cracks me up the most in that scene is the pilot. Yeah. how over the top his reaction is we're gonna make it <laughs> yeah yeah we got it we got it. we're gonna we're gonna live yeah and it's the uh, only lines in the movie spoken by the drummer right yep he never he never says anything throughout the rest of the, the no. whole entire movie except for that scene <laughs> i suppose that's true but really you know that drummer really kind of takes his look from um from spinal tap Mm. From Harry Shearer, yeah. they, don't they? They look like they oh, could that's be true. brothers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe he didn't have a big cucumber in his crotch. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Set off the metal detectors in the airport. <laughs> uh, also, every scene with Frances McDormand, great. You know, the conversation with her and Russell Hammond. Yeah, and then the there's the whole deleted scene. Because Cameron Crowe couldn't get the rights to Stairway to Heaven. Mm-hmm. And so he had originally had that scene where he and his mom sit down and they listen to Stairway to Heaven. And that's what helps convince her that rock and roll is just more than, you know, dr- sex, drugs, and rock uh, and roll. Mm-hmm. And that he couldn't, he still couldn't even when the he, they did the uh, untitled version of it, he still couldn't get the rights to Stairway to Heaven. So on the DVD, he just has the scene by itself and he's like, Okay, cue up Stairway now <laughs> on your own, and then you can listen to it how you're, it's supposed to be. It was going to be played in the movie. Oh, that's clever. What's up with the rights to that? Why Why could nobody get that song for so long? I don't know. I know Zeppelin wasn't really giving a lot of the rights out to anything for a really long time, and then slowly they started to. Well, like now you see them on freaking car they, commercials. Yeah. And they gave, like, Immigrant Song to... Uh, Jack Black in School of Rock but he literally in a deleted scene there's a scene of him in front of a huge crowd asking Zeppelin to give him rights to that song (laughs) and so I I know it's difficult and it just to me it seems weird that they would give him rights to Tangerine and some other songs to use in the movie but not Stairway Hmm. and and the whole which it seems so weird because the whole point of that scene is to basically show how awesome the song Stairway is Mm -hmm. But he, they wouldn't uh, give him the rights. I don't know. Well, cause they they wouldn't give it for Wayne's World either. No. So was that why it was they did that? Scene That's that true. Way? Yeah, yeah they, so. they just wouldn't give up the. Yeah. The, <laughs> okay. Yeah, he had to play some generic chords on the guitar. Yeah. You know, a generic riff instead <laughs> no of no stairway. stairway riff. I just thought it was like some sort of joke where every guitar guitar. You know, fiddles and they got to play stairway because they they want to be mm-hmm. they want to be the best. Well, maybe, well that that was the oh. joke but it was also the fact that he then he couldn't actually start playing stairway oh, at okay. all on the guitar <laughs> all right. that's yeah. funny. maybe it was just that's the one song they were going to hold on to and and not let yeah. get commercialized yeah 
so they the later film... got sued for it. What's that? The there's a band that they toured with in the seventies, I think called Spirit, and they had a song. I think it was called Taurus. And right now, they're the lawsuit eventually got thrown out of the courts, but they were suing, saying that Zeppelin stole the the music for Stairway from a song by this band Spirit, who they actually toured with mm. in their earlier days. And so you can kind of you can go on YouTube and hear comparisons between the songs. Interesting. Well, Spirit eventually gave up and started an airline company. So, <laughs> oh boy, much much better use yeah. of their talents. Yeah, it all worked out for them. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the film came out in September of two thousand. Uh, started in a limited release, and then about three weeks later, uh, went wide, and really financially was not that successful Mm. it um had a budget of 60 million dollars it was you know it was an expensive movie to make i mean part of it is and they had to they needed to get the rights to a lot of this music yeah yeah in order to really feel that world while they wrote some of the songs you know they wrote the stillwater songs they needed all the other music to be the soundtrack, literally, to the movie. Um, so a lot of money went into that. Obviously, it's a lot of location work, a lot of you know stadiums. That's those always get expensive. Sure, but uh, you know the reaction was kind of mild from critics, and okay. just people for some reason didn't immediately take to it. It, you know, got some more notoriety with the Oscar nominations and his uh, win for best screenplay, mm-hmm. which was well deserved. Uh, but it's really the the his most personal film, and and it kind of brings up the question of when when a director puts all of themselves into a movie, what do they have left after that? And I think if you look at Cameron Crowe's work, that he's got, you know, up until this, he's got pieces of himself in all his projects. Mm -hmm. But this is like everything. And look at his films ever since. And they're just not the same. It's like not the same guy directing them. And there's no there's no attachment to those to those stories. And I think you see it with a lot of directors. You saw it with Coppola and Apocalypse Now. You know, Days of Heaven is another one. Mm-hmm. You know, you have guys that like Spielberg and Scorsese who will continue making movies, and some of them good, a lot of them like not so great, mm-hmm. but they're just keep pumping them out and they've got their own kind of system. But a lot of other directors, I think they only have a few really great stories in them. And I think Cameron Crowe might be one of those guys. At least, you know, we'll see what else he does down the road. But mm-hmm. uh, none of these have been the, you know, have resonated with people like everything through this did. And this was a slow roll because I think it was more on home video and DVD that it really started to, to catch on with people. Yeah, I think with the Oscar talk and and yeah home video that's that's where it, people really started to know it because yeah i think it was 32 million was the take in the box office it doesn't it didn't 
it didn't register like you said and uh so it was like kind of a bomb in that way yeah well even even worldwide it was only 47 yeah so this was a, a hit or uh, uh the studio took a hit on this unfortunately yeah um but i, I but i always had the sense like and maybe because we were just young at that time and the oscar buzz and it was oh, like oh i thought everybody knew about almost famous and you know loved yeah it well, <laughs> yeah <laughs> well well especially because you know joel and i watched it so many times mm-hmm. and everyone around us loved the movie mm-hmm. so <laughs> if it was popular in santa fe New Mexico, santa fe was responsible uh, College of Santa Fe is probably just responsible for about ten million of that thirty million gross. <laughs> yeah, you know? right. Santa Fe kids keep going in this movie. Over and over. Hot market. <laughs> well, and you bring up if it wasn't a success in the theaters, because there's a memory I have of this movie, of um, a line from the untitled version, where she says, "I'm go- William. I'm going to have to spend the night in your room tonight. Russell is very is being very Bob Dylan and don't look back." Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, being a huge Dylan fan and liking, you know, Don't Look Back, the the film and everything. Like, I remember that line, but then I feel like it disappeared. And I'm wondering, as you guys know the business and everything, would they have re-edited the movie to re-release in theaters at some point, or like between the one release, uh, a small release, and a larger release, would they have gone back, or or I mean. I'm a heavy drinker, so my memory could not be great. But I swear that line was in the original theater version I Mm -hmm. saw of that movie. And then if you watch the theatrical version, it's not on the DVD. It's not in there, but it's in the untitled. And the untitled didn't come out for years after. And I could just be remembering it wrong. But Uh, I mean, it's possible that they, you know, between releases that they can, you know, either the studio or... Cameron Crowe were like hell bent on making a change they could yeah. they could do it hmm. okay. yeah I'm not sure I can't yeah I can't tell I guess that does happen right but uh, yeah it, it, I, it does happen occasionally I mean like when Star Wars first came out they were yeah. still editing the sound on that movie when it was released right. so yeah, so, a- like, it was one version, and then as they would finish it, they would release updated versions to the theaters. Yeah. So, you know, it has happened. Um, but uh, even opening weekend, when it went wide, it only uh, it's only at number three. It only did third that weekend? Yeah. Yikes. Do you know what uh, what beat it out? I don't. Se- what September could- 22nd, 2000? Mm, what? The Unforgettable Urban Legends Final Cut. What? <laughs> what the hell is that? I don't even remember that. Urban movie. Legends Final Cut. And number two was the uh, re release of the director's cut of The Exorcist. Oh. Which I also oh. saw in theaters. And it was, that was great. But. Huh. Prefer the original cut over that. But what are you going to do? It, it did beat Bring It On. Well. Well, that was in week five of its release. Yeah, Bring It On was doing fine, <laughs> and it pushed The Cell straight out of the top ten. The Cell, <laughs> I saw that movie in theaters. <laughs> I bet you loved it. I didn't. I, I, I thought it was. I thought it was interesting. I thought it looked cool. You were just waiting for Mortal Kombat three. You were just desperate it was, for it. I knew I'd never get it. So, 
you took the soundtrack to this movie and just went whatever tossed it over your shoulder mm-hmm. pulled out mortal Kombat. yeah <laughs> i i play the mortal Kombat soundtrack underneath the movie when i watch almost famous i replace i did my own cut i got rid of all the music that's in the movie and I do tracks. Doesn't everybody do that? <laughs> For the movies I love, I always put in Mortal Kombat. <laughs> um, you know what's, what goes really well with that is The Godfather. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Yeah. All music. Smooth. Um, were there any other like weird cameos or rock stars or like music legends in this thing or anything like that? Or, or references to them that I would have, as a neo... Like, and as a moron, would never pick up on. <laughs> well, there's there's uh, uh, Jan Wenner, right, from Rolling Stone magazine. Oh, yeah, he's in that. Yeah. He's in the taxi cab. Oh, the guy, the guy that's the, the guy in the cab? cab? I, I Actually, I meant to ask, yeah. like, who is that obviously supposed to be? Okay, got it. Uh, um, well, because he's – and that's actually him in the taxi, and then he has a character portrayed yeah. that's talking with Ben Fong Torres. Right. And another random knowledge, Ben Fong Torres went on to write a biography of Graham Parsons as well. So wow. That all flows together. We're just in the Graham Parsons yeah. universe here. Yeah. Uh, Cameron Crowe was saying that during the making of the movie, Ben Fong Torres came to set. And, and now in you know the year 1999 when they shot this, Ben Fong Torres is in business suits and you know is uh, a lot more sophisticated and the one his one note to cameron crow was i never wore shirts like that <laughs> and crow was like that's all you wore dude like, oh no that's- way that's hilarious <laughs> <laughs> well and, and rain wilson played uh uh what was that's he right. who was he playing he's um, one of the other rolling stone executives guys. yeah or you know writers but he's editors but he's clearly a like a, a very character type and i mm-hmm. uh and then reading up on it, it's like yeah no he was he did sort of dress like that and flail about like that and had the long cigarette holder and all that because mm-hmm. it's it is kind of weird he's kind of a cartoon when you first see him like ben, yeah a little bit ben is on the phone with william and he's just like i don't even think he even has a speaking line uh, but he's in the room with him and he's just kind of weird <laughs> like no he's he's got a couple of lines later oh yeah like when william shows yeah. up there that's he's got a few yeah oh david felton he plays david felton yeah david there felton yeah um, you forget how long Rain Wilson's actually been around. He's a, he's a working actor, man. The That's office, what they say. The office wouldn't be for another five years, I think. Yeah, right? I believe that's true. Um, so what do you think, guys? Does the movie still work in 2019? Does it hold up? Or do you think it's aged out? Yes, I think it does. I, I think the, uh, again, that scene we were talking about where he kisses Penny Lane, I think that's really problematic. Um, but I don't think it kills the movie by any means. Yeah, no, I, but I totally agree. I still can enjoy it and everything like that. Yeah, by that point, I mean, you can, you, it's not as gross as, as it might be if it, if you hadn't known these characters and been on that journey with them. I mean, it's, again, it's not a scene you'd write the same way, but... Uh, it doesn't kill the movie at all. I mean, it's just this no, not at thing. All. So, uh, I think the I think the movie really works in uh, in a lot of different ways for uh, William's journey and Penny's journey and Russell, um, and 
and a glimpse into that life and i'm sure like all the things i bet he wish he could put in the movie you know that just wouldn't be able to be fit you know um so it it's a it's a great look at a world i have no knowledge about um or really any curiosity like i'm not you know it's yeah it's fascinating but it's not for me but it's the characters that carry it and it's so it's it's a lovely little story so yeah it holds yeah up. and just going back to it being you know it's so it's genuine it's real and these characters feel real because they basically were real yeah and all these intimate moments between these characters that completely it's to me it's timeless i mean as a story it's timeless obviously clearly it's a period film but the story in its essence goes on forever i mean you you can watch this at any time and the story works it holds up the performances are great nobody's uh, like doing a performance that like oh that's so 90s like <laughs> yeah. like ducky or something yeah sure sure yeah <laughs> uh yeah well it seems very 70s to me <laughs> i don't know that's that's me though that's just you yeah <laughs> um, and if you're you know if you're a fan of cameron crow th- this really is his masterpiece this is his yeah his i wouldn't say it's his life story but it's the story of the first part of his life um and and his most um emotional i think i mean we bought a zoo is pretty heartfelt as well aloha aloha maybe yeah (laughs) um but joel is a super fan of this film what are we what what have we not talked about that we need to be talking about before we you know what's the what's the scoop what's the big inside information you got what do you what are we missing here i i think we've we've hit everything that i've wanted to talk about um i i think the the movie just to me really hits down like it's it's a timeless story in that as long as people want to be cool i think you can always relate to this journey you know because even the band wants to be cool you know jeff bb has that line is it that hard to make us look cool yeah yeah Yeah. right (laughs) And I think that's kind of the universality of this movie is like, even if you don't want to be cool with these people, you want to be cool with these people over here mm-hmm. or, and you want that sense of belonging. And I just, I don't know. I, I it, it stands the test of time. I think that's kind of a universal truth that people just want to be sure. cool. Well, and I think every musician, they would, I think they would be lying to you to say they know when they pick up a guitar and they start playing they know they're they're the coolest person in the room or at least that they feel that way yeah. like they do it because playing a guitar is fucking cool like and that's why they've become musicians you know that it's everyone's chasing something right and this is what musicians exactly. are drawn to and that parallels mm-hmm. acting as well i mean this this kind of goes with becoming a movie star mm-hmm. as well which is the world that patrick fugit was entering mm-hmm. um and you, you know the minute these guys pick up a guitar and decide to become a you know a musician that's like playing publicly mm-hmm. like you you're it may not be your main goal but one of the things is to become a star mm-hmm. same thing with actors actors most actors don't just want to do theater that nobody sees 
you know, part of it is to drive their career to be financially successful and be well known. Uh, but once you have that, what do you kind of sacrifice to get there? Mm, mm-hmm. And that's the journey that Stillwater's on, mm. and and that he's on that William Miller's on as well. Uh, he's trying to fit in. He's trying to find a place to belong, whether it's with this band or with Rolling Stone. And then, you know, eventually Cameron Crowe would grow out of that and kind of stand on his own. Yeah. It, well, throughout the movie, that the, the catchphrase of the movie is, it's all happening. You know, many different characters say it at, at, you know, moments that it's just sort of like, it's all happening. Our lives are changing. This is, everything is different now. Uh, because I'm I'm referencing it. And, you know, they said it. Penny Lane says it in the beginning. It's like a couple more times, and then even before the plane cra- crashes, or you know, when they uh, mm-hmm. I think Dick says it, like it's all happening. Like it's everything continues to push forward. It's that theme of the journey um, is there, and they continually reference it. It's, uh, mm-hmm. I, I like that. I, when I I picked up on it, like wait, didn't I, didn't I hear that like yeah, three yeah. times already? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but it's very. I think it's really like really subtle about that. I don't. Yeah. I don't know if everyone would have picked up on that. We keep hearing the same line, necessarily. Yeah. Um, the super fan would know, Rachel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the ending as well. I love. I love where it like leaves everybody. And yeah. you know, the last time we see Penny Lane, she's on her way to Morocco after all. Yeah. So she kind of held held to that, and who knows what she's going to become there? Who knows? And uh, William Miller's going to get his story. the The real story is going to be let out, and mm-hmm. and he will be able to tell that. Mm-hmm. So you know, you know, things are going to turn out okay for him. Yeah, his his life changes instantly, uh, and then the the they're back on the bus next year, uh, touring mm-hmm. again. So. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, no more planes tour. No more planes tour. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I almost cried that shot where they're walking away from the bus towards the plane yeah, yeah. when they leave it behind. Yeah. yeah. Ah, heartbreaking. <laughs> Poor Doris. Poor, Poor Doris. Doris. <laughs> what happened to Doris? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think this is a great film. I think it totally works. Uh, highly, highly recommend it. Yeah, get it now on your favorite streaming service or uh, video rental place. Watch like Video Tech. Like Video Tech in South Pasadena. Yeah. Well, that's. I think that's going to bring our uh, show to a close this week. Okay, I guess. I guess we've done we, it. Uh, we're. If I look at my watch, I see that it's getting close to Halloween, and as everybody knows, uh, the month of October is a big month. At Recon Cinema Studios, it is this place. This place goes crazy. We go all out here at the studio. We're gonna start. The, David's gonna start decorating the studio lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably tomorrow, Maybe just to get ahead of it. Yeah, it might as well. That's fine. It's never too early to decorate for Halloween. Yeah, never too early. July usually. July is when we start. Sure, yeah, so it's already happening. And I'll, I'll be releasing uh, a dozen or so black cats throughout uh, as I do it. The return year. of the black cats. Yeah, yeah. So be on the lookout for those. Don't let them cross you. <laughs> and uh, we've got a bunch of great programming in October. We've got, we're going to have. <laughs> 
bonus shows. It's all going to be great. It's all happening. We have content coming. We hope you like it. Uh, but yeah, that's going to bring it to a close here. We want to thank our executive uh, musical director, Joel, for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Joel. I, I It's been just a complete and total honor for me to be here with you two. I just, I just feel so so warm and welcome and really just really cool i mean i'm with the cool kids now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah we're not uncool anymore yeah we we we're... are no longer uncool <laughs> our combined forces have created cool we're finally cool guys we did it <laughs> uh, and we're looking forward to having you back sometime down the road i would love to be back i specifically want to come back for josie and the pussycats oh. another musical movie mm-hmm. that I think is horribly underrated. Ooh. Okay. Alrighty. Alright, All that's right up there. our alley. Throwing down the gauntlet. Yeah, saying it. Alrighty. Joel's cornered the market on Josie and the Pussycats. That's your exclusive sneak peek at our Josie and the Alright, we're going to have to one, we'll tra- check our schedule and see when we can work that. Maybe after the holidays we'll, we'll work that one in. Yeah, holidays 2020, 2021 maybe. We'll see. Yeah, or this year, I don't know. Well, we have to. We we've got a. We're in massive negotiations for uh, with this, the other studios for some of these movies. So we'll we'll see where we we'll work. See it where at. we end up. Uh, but we'll definitely. Yeah, Joel, you gotta come back. You gotta. I'd love to hear your hot take on Josie and the Pussycats. Little preview. It's the greatest movie of all time. Ever. Oh my god! Wow. <laughs> Oh my God! Bold statement. Let's see. Let's see. Firing it out at the end of the show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it was yeah, it was great to have you here, man. And uh, yeah, it's good. Have good to talk to you again, me personally. Yeah, I, I love talking to you guys. Love talking about almost famous. Yeah. Uh, all right, guys. Well, uh, before we go, check out our social media. It's Reconcinimation Podcast on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, check out our, our back catalog at www.reconcinimation.com. I want to thank our friends P.K. Wimmer, who does our theme song, and Curtis Moore for the great poster this week. And uh, we are looking forward to being back with you in October. We'll see you next time. Bye now. <laughs>